Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 11th, 2022 in San Francisco. It's always tomorrow here, and it's always tomorrow in Australia. So uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit Australia, certainly someone in Australia. But just want to remind you of uh, a really wonderful show I thought I did, yes, uh, last week. I, of course, I think all my shows are wonderful, but this one was particularly wonderful with the biographer of Alan Turing, Andrew Hodges. Um, we entitled the show Why One of the 20th century's most important thinkers remain so relevant in the 21st century. Uh, Alan Turing, of course, was an English mathematician, computer science, logician, crypto analyst, philosopher, and according to Wikipedia, theoretical biologist. He's the hero of um, Hodge's wonderful biography, The Enigma, the book that inspired the film, The Imitation Game, even if Hodges is not a great fan of the imitation game. And uh, Hodges also wrote uh, a book about Turing in the Great Philosophers series. I thought of Turing and philosophy, reading a, a piece by my old friend um, uh, John Thornhill in the FT last week uh, about machines behaving badly. Uh, it was a review of a new book called Machines Behaving Badly, and I'm quoting uh, Thornhill. He said, on a list of the most impactful figures of the 20th century, several names jump out. Albert Einstein, Mahatma Gandhi, and Franklin D. Roosevelt on the positive side of the ledger, and that trio of tyrants, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, who did accountable harm. But in Machines Behaving Badly, Toby Wolf makes a convincing case that a thousand years in the future, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, assuming humanity survives that long, the answer will be perfectly clear, Alan Turing. So we're going to tomorrow where it's July the 12th, 2022 with Toby Wolf. Toby, um, make the case, why in a thousand years will uh, Turing be considered the greatest philosopher of the 20th century? Well, certainly if I had to name a dinner party guest, I'd love to have met uh, Alan Turing would be right at the top of the list um, for a number of reasons. I mean, first of all, he is the father of the computer. He in, invented, um, you know, he was one of the people at, at Bletchley Park behind the invention of the first computer. And he laid the theoretical foundations. And that's why we call them Turing machines today is because he mathematically worked out what computers could do. And what's more rem remarkable is he worked out what they couldn't do. Um, before we even had a computer, he worked out what the limits of computers would be. Um, and so uh, he's a remarkable person. Um, and that would be enough to, I think, perhaps to make him uh, as one of the most important people of the century, if not of the millennia. Um, but also he laid the foundations for the subject that I've spent my life studying, artificial intelligence. He, he wrote what is generally considered to be the first paper, scientific paper, about artificial intelligence. Computing Machinery and Intelligence, uh, where he described the imitation game, the Turing test, as it's now called, um, as a as a thought experiment, a Gedanken experiment as to 
how will we know when we've built machines that could be as smart as humans? And so, um, you know, undoubtedly, the computer, um, the digitalization of our lives has been the most um, influential technological change of this century and is going to, the, the ripples of that are going to continue for the next millennia. And then when we look back and think what did change civilization most, it would be the way we digitized our lives. And if it weren't for Alan Turing, we wouldn't be doing that. Toby, you say that Turing also noted the limits of AI, of computers. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so there, I mean, there are fundamental theoretical limits. We, there is this beautiful idea of undecidability. There are, there are problems that cannot be solved by a single algorithm. We know that. Where there are, there are, there are limits to what you can do with these machines. They're marvelous machines. We can do remarkable things with them. But nevertheless, there are some things that are not computable. Some people believe, and you know this field better than I do, that machines can one day learn to think for themselves. Did Turing say that they couldn't? And do you believe that that's the case? No, he, he, he laid out the mathematical limitations. Um, I, from what, what you can tell from his writing, um, he was of, of the belief that we would build machines that would match humans in their intelligence. And I think it would be terribly conceited to think that you wouldn't exceed humans in their intelligence because... There's lots of limitations that humans have. We have only, we're very forgetful. We think at biological speeds, not at electrical speeds. Um, there are many reasons to suppose that we'll eventually build machines that will match and then shortly afterwards exceed human intelligence. And in, indeed, I mean, the machines that we can build today that do narrow tasks, whether that be you know playing Go, uh, translating tweets from Mandarin into English or interpreting x-rays, we can build those machines to do those things at superhuman levels. And so I think if at some point in the near future, we'll be able to build machines that exceed those and, and exceed pretty much anything that humans can do. Most, most of my colleagues would say that we're biological machines. There's nothing particularly special about what we do that you couldn't hope perhaps to, to match that in a computing device. In your book, and, it, and it's a wonderful title. Congratulations, Toby, the best <laughs> title of the week, Machines Behaving Badly, The Morality of AI. Um, are, are you suggesting that the limitations, if you like, on of machines behaving badly is that they can't behave any worse than we do? Thornhill, in his piece, noted Mao, uh, Lenin and Hitler, or Mao, Stalin and Hitler, I assume machines couldn't behave any worse than that, could they? <laughs> well, <laughs> probably not. But I, I do make the argument that that even if machines can make better decisions than humans, there are places where I think it would be taking away from our inherent humanity if we gave those decisions to machines, even if the machines would be saving lives or doing a better job than humans, that machines aren't moral beings, they're not mortal they can't be punished. They can't be held accountable for their actions. And so there are some places where I think even, even where humans will be more fallible, um, worse at making the decisions, we don't want to wake up in a world where we've given those decisions to machines. Toby, I'm living, and you know this as well as I do, in San Francisco, the 
town and on the peninsula of smart smart machines, particularly smart cars, self-driving cars. You can't go out these days without quite literally sometimes bumping into a, uh, a smart car, a car driven by an algorithm. We did a show um, last year with a, an English, uh, an American philosopher, Benjamin J.B. Lipscomb, an interesting book. The Women Are Up to Something. It's a book about the work of Elizabeth Anscombe, Philippa Foote, Mary Midgley and Iris Murdoch, four Oxford philosophers. And uh, Philippa Foote was the Oxford philosopher who came up with the the, the trolley dilemma, where <laughs> yes. supposedly um, uh, a, a, a smart machine or a smart car is, is heading for a group of humans. Should it be programmed to run over one small child or four old ladies? Are those the wrong sorts of problems, of issues, of discourse that we should be thinking about when it comes to AI and morality? In many ways, it is. I mean, of, of course, if you actually go back and look at what Philippa was trying to introduce the, the trolley dilemma for, it was not to discuss intelligent machines and the moral responsibilities of machines making life-changing decisions. It was to dis, to actually try and throw some light on that really challenging, difficult human debate around abortion. Um, it, it was about whether you would allowed to take one life to save another. Um, the sort, sorts of really challenging problems that we face. Very right. Yeah, you remind me of that. Very, very, I mean, it's, it's a really important point and very obviously in America in particular, incredibly relevant today. Uh, and it, it, it wasn't introduced. I mean, it, it, of course, on the surface level, it sounds entirely appropriate to discuss the challenges that autonomous cars are going to throw out because they will. They will come across situations where we where we have to face these sorts of problems. And, and indeed, I, I remember when I had just got passed by driving tests back in the UK many years ago, I faced some, one such problem. I remember driving down the road one bright morning in London and someone pulled out in front of me and I had to make that decision. Do I drive into them or do I drive into um, some pedestrians crossing a, a zebra crossing? Um, and I, I made the decision to, of course, drive into the car. Um, Fortunately, I survived, everyone survived. But um, so this is not a decision that machines alone have to face. It's a decision that humans have to face. Whenever whenever you get in a car, you you might have to face that problem. And what, what's interesting is if you look at the highway code, if you look at the the rules of the road in, in any country, I'm not aware of any country that tells you what you're supposed to do in such a situation, what, what priorities you're supposed to make. So it's not... It's not like it's a, a new problem. It's a problem that we humans face. Uh, what's what's different, I think, what's what's interesting here is that if you're going to program a computer to respond uh, in a, an autonomous car, you've got to decide in advance. Uh, currently, if you face such a situation as I did back in, back in the day when I was driving my car, um, if if I'd made the wrong decision and I'd survived the accident, then maybe I'd face, you know, manslaughter charges or whatever. But that was only after the event where you would actually analyze what happened. Now you have to think in advance what to do. But, you know, it's called a dilemma for the very obvious reason. It, it is a dilemma. There's no there's no one good answer. Both All, all the possible answers you, you can give are going to end up with people being killed. Um, and there's not a particularly good way to, to prioritize one person's life over another. Um, fun, I, I do have colleagues, people I know, who 
who write the code for autonomous cars, who actually write the control algorithm, and they they just laugh at you bemusedly when you ask the, these questions because because they they point out the car doesn't understand the world well enough to make these sorts of decisions. It's not it's 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 perception of the world. It's, it's decision making isn't refined enough to be able to decide: do I kill um, the inhabitants of the car, or do I kill the pedestrians, or you know, to make these sorts of trade off decisions that that are posed in these dilemmas. Um, so it, it's it's actually entirely irrelevant to how autonomous cars get built today. Um, if you ask, if you look at what the top, top level code is of an autonomous car, it's literally to drive on the open road. I mean, to, 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 to not, a, not um, hit anything if, a, if at all possible. And if there's no open road in front of you that you could drive on, then to brake as hard as possible, that's it. That's all it's going to do. Um, whether that's going to kill two people or kill five people, um, it's going to depend on the exact circumstances of, of, of the the accident. But um, it's not it's not making those moral decisions because it doesn't actually understand the world um, well enough. But it's but you know what's interesting is people have become fixated as that that is you know one of the moral debates where there's been the most discussion. Around, uh, around well even uh, yeah toby even you were discussing it your subtitle of the book is the morality of ai i'm curious you also wrote a wonderful book a wonderful title 2062 the world that ai made does our obsession including yours with the morality of ai does that prove that ai is real today or does that suggest that it's actually still on the horizon like the brazilian economy or something because we've been <laughs> hearing that ai is the future if not since touring, certainly for the last 50 years, and it, it doesn't seem to be affecting our day-to-day -day life, maybe the occasional self-driving car, but we're still pretty much dominated by a world without AI, and our morality, if it exists, is not really intimately bound up with AI. Is, is our obsession with the morality of AI, does that prove that it's for real or it's still brewing? Well, I, I would disagree with you that it's not part of our lives because it is part of our lives. But most of the examples of AI in your life are somewhat invisible. It is the machine learning that goes into the Facebook news feed or the Google ads that are serving up ads or the machine learning that's gone into the Netflix recommendation algorithm that's recommending uh, a movie for you to watch or Amazon's uh, product recommendations that are recommending a book for you to buy. They're all little examples of AI that we probably don't realize. And they do have moral consequence. You know, the Facebook newsfeed is consequential. It is the thing that that is serving up the fake ads and the changing the way that we think about issues. And similarly, YouTube's recommendation algorithm um, that is recommending divisive content to us, that, that is polarizing our views. Those those are very real examples of how AI is going wrong today and is actually manipulating how we think and changing how we vote. There are some people, and I'm sure you're right, Toby, there are some people who believe in Silicon Valley that AIs uh, are real. Uh, there was a, a Google engineer who just got fired, um, and Google's been in a lot of trouble recently with various kinds of engineers and, and, and AI. We actually had uh, uh, Margaret Mitchell on the show, one of the former Google engineers who was fired from the company. 
Um, what do you make? You, you wrote an interesting piece in The Guardian on this. What, what do you make of the confusion, at least on the part of this Google engineer between uh, the AI and quote unquote, a real person? Well, I think the dangerous thing here is how easily we're fooled. Um, even, even a smart person like a senior Google engineer can be easily fooled and we're going to be easily fooled. And um, machines that aren't particularly smart and that are not definitely not sentient are going to fool us into believing that they are. Um, and indeed, you know, I've put this idea that we need, um, and to go back to Turing, a Turing red flag, um, the idea being um, like when we invented the motor car, we used to have people with red flags who would walk in front of them to, to warn, you know, people on horses coming the other way that there was this strange device that was coming around the corner that, that, might, that might shock and startle the horse and that you should be aware um, that we should be made aware that when it's it's not a human, when it's a computer, and and this isn't the you know the Google's Lambda chatbot fooling someone. Isn't the first time that Google's run into this problem when they back in 2018 when they demo Duplex, their their new voice assistant um, that was able to ring up and book a book a haircut or book a reserve a uh, table at a restaurant. Um, there was a big controversy about that because. It undenied like a human. And there's no reason to program a computer to um and ah unless you're trying to fool people. Um, and they deliberately were trying to fool people. And indeed, I, I know some of the people um, in Google who told management, you should put a, a warning at the front of the, of the message. When you ring someone up, you should tell them, this is not a human, this is a computer. I, you know, I'm Toby's assistant, I'm Toby's computer assistant, I'm ringing up to book a table. Um, you shouldn't deceive people and pretend that you're a human by, especially by umming and ahhing, um, because people will be easily fooled, and we're e we are easily fooled. We're 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 very understanding, um, and so people will be easily fooled. And then, then you do have terrifying weapons. I mean, as as an example, uh, you know, a weapon of mass persuasion that you could build. You can you can train a tr chatbot to speak to to speak like Trump, um, not only to say the things that Trump would say, but to sound like Trump. And now you can actually get that chatbot to ring up every voter individually in the United States and discuss your um, campaign to, to, you know, take back the presidency. That, I suspect, is going to be rather a powerful weapon of persuasion. Um, and it's entirely possible to build today. You mentioned Google. Um, and uh... Google is one of the leaders, one of the big tech companies in Silicon Valley. They claim that they're advancing AI for everyone. They're not alone. OpenAI, for example, another extremely well-backed AI company, uh, suggests its mission is to ensure that artificial general intelligence benefits all of humanity. Should we be careful with this language? I don't want to turn this into just another bashing of big tech, Google and OpenAI. But it seems as if all these companies, in terms of justifying AI, are doing it in the language of benefiting humanity. Is that itself problematic, Toby? Yeah, I think I think it is, and I think we should perhaps go back and look at history. Go back, go back and look at the you know the first industrial revolution, where where we introduced technologies that transformed our work, transformed our lives, in, improved the world's economy dramatically, and for. I mean, we did 
have a time where the, the benefits were being accrued by just the, you know, as they became known, the rubber barons. Um, and we did have to push back. We did introduce a, a lot of reforms to ensure that the benefits were spread around. We introduced unions and labor laws and a welfare state and universal education. We did, we did a lot of things to change society in quite significant structural ways to ensure that the benefits that those technologies were bringing were spread around. And it wasn't as, as you know, some would believe that it was just the owners of the means of production, the factory owners that would, would profit, but all of us, and all of us did profit. I mean, life expectancy is nearly doubled. Um, median income in, in developed countries has increased dramatically um, as a consequence. But um, that seems to have stalled now. And I think we have to go back and ask the same questions for this technological revolution, whether um, we are going to be um, sharing the benefits around. Um, and that certainly hasn't seemed to be the case in the last decade or two. Lots of talk about what AI can do specifically. Uh, I had a writer and a researcher, Bina Amanath, you may know her. Uh, she has a new book out called Trustworthy, a business guide for navigating trust and ethics in AI. She believes that AI can be used to finally solve the problem of diversity. She works for Deloitte, uh, the, excuse me, uh, the big international, <laughs> excuse me, uh, the big international consultancy. And uh, again, coming back to the issue of how enterprises and corporations are using this technology, should we be wary of? And again, I don't want to pick just on Bina or on Deloitte, but should, be, should we be wary, Toby, of, of using AI to solve these deeply rooted socio-economic, cultural issues that have bedeviled humanity, particularly diversity, uh, racism, gendered, uh, gendered inequality? We should be careful. We should we, we should be careful. These aren't just technical problems. They're, they're deep sociological, uh, philosophical problems about, you know, what does it mean to be fair and just and equitable? And there aren't easy answers to that. And, and they're not certainly answers that you can just program on a computer. But equally, we, we should also be aware of, of how bad human decision making is. We're, we're full of biases. I mean, behavioral psychology is a, is a long catalog of the ways that we are we make irrational decisions. We make we're full of subconscious biases, and, and despite all the training and work that we might do to try and eliminate those, uh, we still make very bad decisions. And there is the possibility, if we're careful, to make much more evidence-based decisions, much more rational, much much more fair decisions that be that could be audited for such, if we um, lean upon computers to help us do that. But the, the pro I mean, the problem is that that requires us to be really careful and thoughtful um, and not just to go away and say, oh, well, we just implement some machine learning to do this and um, we'll train it on some data and it will, will come back. The algorithm will be unbiased. That was the that was the lie that the big tech companies sold at the beginning of this you know, tech revolution, that, that algorithms were making decisions and algorithms didn't have the biases of humans. Well, algorithms can inherit the biases of humans, especially when they're trained on human data um, and the worst than humans they, they, they tend to be black boxes so they tend very hard to inspect how they made the decisions and of course because they're algorithms they're not accountable they're not they can't be held accountable they can't 
they they they, they can't explain their decision making and be punished when when they make decisions that are, are, are not appropriate. So um, I think there is promise, but it's not as easy perhaps as the, as the tech industry has initially laid out that promise. Um, and then I think there are certain places where even if that promise could be realized, I suspect we don't want to give those decisions machines. You know, really high stake decisions, it's decisions in the judiciary about taking away people's liberty, um, decisions about, um, you know, um, our borders about you know who to give visas, who who to let entry into your country. Um, those really high stake decisions. I I don't want to wake up in the world, the sort of world that the authors like Orwell and Huxley have warned us about, where it's a cold, impassionate, unempathetic computer that's making the decision. However correct, however rational, um, however repeatable that decision might be, I want to w wake up in a world in which it's still humans with all their failings make those sorts of decisions. Toby, we live in a world, for better or worse, that seems to be particularly ridden with anxiety and loneliness. Is it any coincidence, do you think, that in this world we also have this increasing rise of AI and a, a huge appetite, a longing for empathy? I had Sherry Turkle on the show. She's a, an old friend and a frequent guest. She's been warning us endlessly in her autobiography and in a lot of her written work about the perils of pretend empathy. Should we be particularly um, suspicious and wary and defensive about AI that claims to be empathetic? Every, every week in Silicon Valley, there's a new book by some sort of marketing maven or another about empathy fake empathy, human empathy. I don't know why it's the word of the year, or perhaps the word of the decade. And it's one that the AI crowd, uh, not perhaps your crowd, but the corporate crowd have got hold of. Yeah, I think we should be very worried. I think we, at the end of the day, what our superpower is not really our intelligence. It, it, it was our empathy, our ability to, our social intelligence, our ability to work together. That's the thing that that, that actually got us to outcompete the other animals on the savannah was the fact that we came together and worked together. And the thing that, you know, there was been a lot of pain in the last couple of years through the pandemic. But the thing that we missed most was was the ability to, to meet other people, to come together face to face. That's hardwired into us. That That is the thing that gives us the most satisfaction in life, that that has been the thing that has allowed us to to make all these amazing achievements in the, on the planet is is our ability to empathize with each other. And if we've got these devices that are pretending to empathize with us and are fooling us, I think we, we're going to end up in a, in a in a very potentially dark place. Again, the, the sort of place that you read about in science fiction, um, where machines uh, are being surrogates for that. And we, we're getting, um, we're, we're actually not um, coming together as groups anymore, but we're actually being isolated by the machines. So I think we should be very careful. One of the most chilling books, Toby, I'm not sure if you've read it, is um, Kazuo, Kazuo, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro's Clara and the Sun, which imagines a world where machines appear to be empathetic, certainly as empathetic as human beings. You talked about Turing being the the most important philosopher in a thousand years' time. But I Ishiguro's world, I I'm not sure if you've read the book, it's a brilliant book. Um, 
Ishiguro's book doesn't seem to be a thousand years in the future, maybe 50, maybe 100. How close are we to a world of Clara and the Sun where it's going to be increasingly difficult to distinguish between machines and humans, particularly in terms of conversation? Well, in some sense, we're already in that world. You can already be fooled by machines in conversation. Um, maybe not that they don't have human form yet, but um, in terms of their conversation, we're already being fooled, as the Google engineer was fooled. Um, so that world is, is not far away. I mean, indeed, the title of my last book, 2062, was trying to trying to put a date on that world, which is, which is sometime, you know, if we're lucky, maybe in our lifetimes and almost certainly in the lifetime of our children. Um, and that I think that's worth thinking about. If, if we imagine, you know, we received, um, you know, the, the, the first images from the, the, the new um, web space, space telescope demonstrated to us that there was intelligent life out there in the universe. And that indeed, maybe we received a, a radio message saying, dear earthlings, we're, we're, we're coming to earth. Um, but of course, given the great interstellar distances, it, it's going to take 50 years for that to happen. There would be panic. There would be a you know emergency meeting at the United Nations. Um, there would be a committee of scientists and the great and good assembled to to deal with this potential catastrophe. The idea that you know intelligent life was going to arrive on Earth, um, and what would how would we deal with the the consequences of that? And yet that's what we face. In, you know, we are not going to be the most intelligent thing on the planet in about fifty years' time. We're going to be re replaced by artificial intelligence, at least in terms of our intelligence. Well, it's chilling. And uh, not only should you read Clara and the Sun, but certainly um, Machines Behaving Badly as, uh, by Toby, um, Toby Walsh's new book, The Morality of AI, as well as 2062, The World That AI Made, and his third book, It's Alive. What else, Toby, should people be reading in addition to your stuff and Ishiguro? Uh, well, so I'll, I'll tell you what I've been reading. I'm halfway through this now, which is the shortest history of the world um which is a whistle stops history of the last 13.8 billion years ever since the big bang and and although i'm only halfway through i'm still already convinced that it's we're just so lucky to be here if you read through the story of what we know about how the universe came into existence how how the solar system came into existence how the earth came into existence how life then evolved on the planet you realize at so many points it could have gone wrong. There are so many points where uh, there are you know, so many e extinction events that have happened in the history of the world. There's so many times that the climate has changed in ways that have destroyed the existing life on Earth um, that you realize how precious life is, our life is, and, how, and, and especially when we're facing things like climate change, how precious it is to try and ensure that we don't, we don't snuff it out again. Or outsource it to AI. Or, or outsource it to AI, yes. I mean, AI is, at the end of the day, I think, should always be a tool that allows us to be better humans.